Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. Thank you for the wonderful day that you have given to us. Just a beautiful, sunshiny day. We ask now that as we open your word, that the sunshine of your Holy Spirit will come into our hearts. And as uh, the sun energizes uh, the vegetation and helps it to grow and to produce fruit, we ask that uh, Jesus will shine in our hearts and lead us to produce fruit in our lives as well. Be with us as we study this lesson tonight. Give us your wisdom. And we thank you for hearing us and for answering our prayer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, the rapture and the blessed hope. By the way, the lesson tomorrow night, of all of the lessons of the seminar, uh, it's one of the two favorites that I have. And so you won't want to miss the lesson tomorrow night. Um, uh, make sure you study it. And uh, come, at, uh, come with it ready because uh, we're going to uh, go through it rather quickly and I'm going to add a lot of material that's not in the lesson. Okay, let's begin uh, with the introductory paragraph of our lesson. In our lesson today, we will study what Jesus taught about his second coming. Many Christians today believe that the coming of Jesus will take place in two stages. Stage number one, the rapture of the church before the tribulation. And number two, his glorious coming after the tribulation to reign on earth for 1,000 years. The question is, is this scenario correct? Is it even important to understand how Jesus will come? In this lesson, we will study what Jesus said about his coming as well as some other verses in the New Testament which address this particular issue about how Jesus will come. Now there's one thing that we can be absolutely certain of, and that is that the devil hates Christ's second coming. He does not want God's people to be ready for the second coming. The reason we know this is because the devil hated the first coming of Christ. And we know that when Jesus Christ came to this earth the first time, nobody was expecting him. Except for a few shepherds in the field and three wise men, traditionally three wise men. The Bible says that some wise men came from the east. But uh, some wise men came from the east. They were not even Hebrews. They did not profess the Hebrew religion. And they came to visit Jesus bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As it says in John chapter 1 and verse 11, at his first coming, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Do you suppose that it's just possible that the devil is going to deceive the Christian world regarding the manner of Christ's second coming, so that when Christ comes the second time, the vast majority of the Christian world will not be expecting him? Do you believe the devil has gone through conversion experience and that he's not going to try and deceive the Christian world before the second coming as he deceived the Christian world before the first coming? I don't think so. In fact, I believe that uh, in the Christian world today uh, there is a vast deception which is going to lead Christians not only to not be prepared for the second coming of Christ but to accept the counterfeit second coming of Satan. And we're going to discuss that in the lesson tonight as well as in our lesson tomorrow night. Let's go to question number two, or number two in the lesson. It's not actually a question. As we have seen in previous lessons, there were multiple prophecies in the Old Testament which pointed to the Messiah. 
Did the Old Testament say where he was going to be born? Yes. Did the Old Testament say that he was, that he was going to be rejected? Did the Old Testament say when he was going to be baptized? Did the Old Testament say that he was going to be crucified, but he wasn't going to die for himself? He was going to die for others. Did the Old Testament prophesy that he was going to resurrect? Yes. There were abundant prophecies. In fact, I have a list of over 50 prophecies from the Old Testament, precise prophecies, about how the Messiah was going to come the first time. And yet when Jesus came, nobody was expecting him. And the question is, why? Number three. The reason why the religious leaders and the people did not recognize Jesus is because they were expecting an earthly king. In other words, they were expecting the Messiah to come differently than the way he came. And therefore, when he came, they were not ready to receive him. Now, pardon me, did I skip number two? Well, yes, I covered it, basically, but let's go through it. As we have seen in previous lessons, there were multiple prophecies in the Old Testament which pointed to the Messiah. The most exceptional was the prophecy of the 70 weeks. We studied that prophecy. How precise, not only as to event, but as to time. And yet they were not expecting him. Amazing. Now, let's go to our next section, gathering the elect. Jesus will return with the clouds of heaven and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet is that parallel to 1 Thessalonians 4 the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout with the voice of an archangel and with what and with the trumpet of God is that the same coming yes it is now he's going to send his angels with the sound of a, a trumpet with a great sound of a trumpet to do what to gather together his, don't miss this point, to gather together his elect from the four winds. Question, are the elect on planet earth when Jesus comes? Yes, they are. Now, let's go to question number two. Jesus assured us that the great tribulation would be shortened for the elect's sake. He also said that during the tribulation, Satan will perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, here's my question. If Jesus assured that the tribulation would be shortened because of the elect, and that Satan would deceive during the tribulation, if possible, the elect, must the elect go through the tribulation? I mean, how intelligent do you need to understand this? do you need to be in order to understand this? I mean, if, uh, if the elect, the devil's intending to deceive them during the tribulation, and the tribulation is going to be shortened, shortened for the sake of the elect, it must be that the elect will go through the tribulation. But you know, the argument that's given by modern uh, Christian scholars is they say, well, but the elect here is talking about the Jews. And so that's why I included number three. The Apostle Paul asked, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? By the way, it's the same Greek word. And then it continues saying, It is God who justifies. 
Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who? Is. Notice. When uh, does it say will be or does it say is in Paul's day? Is. Who is even at the right hand of God who also will make intercession for us. No. Who, who makes intercession for us. Let me ask you. For whom does Christ intercede? For the elect. For whom did Christ die? Whom does Jesus Christ justify? The elect. So who are the elect? The elect are those who from the time of the Apostle Paul accepted whom? Jesus. So who are the elect who are going to go through the time of trouble? Those who have received Jesus. Will Christians go through the tribulation? Yes. Do you understand this section? Is it clear? Any questions? All right. Good. Now, let's go to the next section. One taken and the other left. In Matthew 24, 40 and 41, we find that what? Then. You say, why do you put a space for the word then? Because it's important. <laughs> then. When? When? Okay, thank you. What would that seem to indicate then? Then. Oh, thank you very much. In other words, there's this event that takes place, and then this is going to happen. So do we need to look at the previous verses? Okay. Now, let's go to number one again. In Matthew 24, 40 and 41, Jesus says, uh, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Now, some have understood the text in the following way. Believers will be taken to heaven by Jesus and unbelievers will be left behind on earth. Is that what the text says? That is not what the text says. That is an interpretation of the text. And by the way, it doesn't even fit the text when you study it carefully. The text simply says that one will be taken and the other left. It doesn't say one will be taken someplace and the other one will be left in another place. It simply says one will be taken and the other one will be left. Now a word of caution is in order. We must be careful not to explain words in the light of our present day meanings but in the light of their original biblical meanings. See, words back there meant different things than now. And so we have to look at what these words meant in biblical times. As we shall see, biblically, the ones who are left are the saved, while those who are taken are the lost. And somebody says, but Pastor Bohr, come on! Taken means taken! And left means left behind, doesn't it? Uh, yes, in our English language, that's true. But we don't go to the English language. We go to the meanings of the original words as they're found in the Bible. Because the Bible languages uh, were languages that were spoken Greek 2,000 years ago and Hebrew even much further back than that. And so we have to allow the Bible to tell us the meaning of these words, left and taken. Now, number two, 
the word then in Matthew 24, 40, as well as in 41, leads us back to verses what? 37 to 39. What two great events are compared in these verses? The flood in the days of Noah and what? And the second coming of Christ, right? So, whatever then means, whatever the word then means, it means that the flood came and took them all away, and then one is left and one is what? Taken. In other words, the flood comes first, one is left and one is taken. The second coming comes, one is left and one is taken. Now, let's read the note. Verses 37 to 39 describe the flood. The normal word for flood in the New Testament is potamos. It's used, for example, in uh, Matthew 7, 25 and 27, where Jesus talked about the man who built his house upon the rock, and the floods came. It's also used in Revelation 12, where the serpent spews waters out of his mouth to make the woman be taken away by the flood. But when the New Testament speaks about Noah's flood, which is actually God's flood flood in the days of Noah, a different word is used. Not the word potamos, but the word cataclysmos. What English word comes from cataclysmos? Cataclysm. In other words, the flood was a worldwide cataclysm. A worldwide disaster is what it's saying. This was no little potamos. This was a cataclysm of major proportions. Now, it is, the mo- is it, it is at the moment when the cataclysmic flood came that one was taken and the other left. Is that clear in your mind? Because it says, the flood came and took them all away. Then, two will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Then when? As when the flood came. And as when Jesus comes. Is that clear in your mind? The word then indicates a sequence. Now, let's talk first of all about the word left. See, the way this is interpreted by uh, by most conservative Christians today is that they say left means left behind. By the way, there's there's a movie... Uh, and there's a series of books called Left Behind. And the idea is that, uh, you know, the church is raptured seven years before the glorious coming of Jesus, raptured to heaven, and those who aren't ready for the rapture will be left behind. In other words, the lost are left behind and the saved are taken. Now, is that what the Bible is trying to tell us? Absolutely not. Let's go to number three. Let's let the Bible tell us what this means. Not Tim LaHaye, not Stephen Bohr, the Bible. I could care less what scholars say, unless they say something that's in harmony with the Bible. Then I do care what they say. Notice number three. By the way, where do we need to go back to find out uh, what it means one was taken and one was left? Where do you suppose would be a good place to go to find out? Would it be a good idea to go back to Genesis? In fact, does Jesus send us back to Genesis? Sure. He says, in the, at the time of the flood, one was what? Left and the other taken. It's not speaking numerically, but they said some were left and the others were taken. Now, if you want to know who was left and who was taken, uh, Jesus is saying, go back and study the flood. Are you with me? 
Now, according to Genesis 7.23, when the flood came, God destroyed what? All living things that were on the face of the ground. How many? Only the beasts. All men? All human beings? How many people outside the ark perished? You mean to say there weren't some that perished and, and some that were left behind alive? Because that's what the rapture, teach, the, the rapture theory teaches. They say that when Jesus comes in the rapture, the saved he's going to take to heaven. Some people will be destroyed by this coming of Jesus because, of course, you know, the pilot who's raptured to heaven, the airplane's going to, going to crash, you know. And whoever is driving a car and is raptured, the car is going to crash into a tree or whatever. And, and if you have somebody who's a, who's a um, uh, captain of a boat and the boat is nearing the port and, uh, and the captain is raptured away, well, that poor ship is going to crash into, uh, into the land. And so they say a lot of people are going to die. But you see, what they teach is that the saved are raptured away but those who are left behind, some of them die, but some of them remain alive. Does that fit Matthew 24? No, because Matthew 24 says that when this happens, then when this happens, it doesn't say there will be some living and some dead who are left behind and some other ones, the saved, who will be raptured away. The fact is that there's only two groups. Those who are safe in the ark and those who are outside the ark and are destroyed. Are you understanding what I'm saying? But those who teach the rapture, they say that uh, when Jesus comes in the rapture, there's going to be a group of dead people that are going to die and there's going to be a group of living people who are left behind and there are the saved that are going to be taken back to heaven. Let me ask you, does that fit the flood terminology that Jesus uses? Absolutely not. Because it says when the flood comes, one will be left and the other will be taken. When the second coming arrives, one will be left and the other will be taken. In other words, as at the flood, there were only two groups, the saved in the ark and the lost outside the ark. When Jesus comes, there's only going to be two groups, the saved and the lost, not uh, those individuals who die and are lost and those individuals who are alive and are lost. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, it becomes even more interesting, number three again, according to Genesis 7.23, when the flood came, God destroyed every living thing, all living things that were on the face of the ground. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained. Yes, Larry. Yes. No, because, uh, because the story of the flood is not a direct prophecy like Daniel and Revelation. In other words, uh, the, the stories, when you have a story in the Old Testament that is fulfilled on a larger scale in the future, the time periods do not apply in prophetic terms because you're not dealing directly with symbols. You understand what I'm saying? It's only in the great prophecies of Daniel and Revelation where it's pure prophecy and it's not a story that's taking place in history which then becomes a model in miniature of greater events in the future. Uh, uh, only those prophecies which are in Daniel and Revelation which are pure prophecies they don't have a fulfillment in the past but they're going to be fulfilled in the future from the time of the prophet only those prophecies do you apply the year day principle 
Monument Valley, that's an interesting uh, place. I don't know how those monuments got where they're at. <laughs> we'll have to ask the Lord someday. It's an it's amazing place. Okay, let's go to our note. By, by the way, uh, you notice the word alive is in italics? What does that mean? It means that it's supplied by the translators. The verse really ends by saying, Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained. By the way, does anybody have the NIV here? The New International Version? You want to read that uh, verse in uh, the NIV? Real loud so that everybody can hear you. Only Noah was what? I checked out 20 Bible translations. In 18 of the 20 translations, it says that only Noah and his family were left. The King James and the New King James says only Noah and his family remained. So my question is, who are the left ones? Biblically. Not according to Tim LaHaye uh, or, or any of the modern scholars or even myself. In Genesis 7.23, who are the ones who are left? The ones who are left are the saved. Noah and his family were what? We're left. Let me ask you, do we, do we even use that same terminology today? For example, when there's a devastating flood, we say, did the flood take everybody away? Wasn't there anybody left? Do we speak that way? Yes, we do. Who would be the ones who are left? The ones who survived the flood. And that's what Genesis 7.23 is saying. The flood took all of everybody outside the ark, wiped them out, according to the NIV. And only Noah and his family were what? Were left. Now let's read the note. Very interesting. Uh, this Hebrew scholar, and by the way, there are several quotations I could have included, but I'm only including this one. The Hebrew word left in Genesis 7.23 is shawar. According to the Hebrew scholar Gary G. Cohen, the word seems to be used almost exclusively to indicate the static action of surviving after an elimination process. No matter what the cause, shawar points to that which remains or has survived. So who are those who will be left when Jesus comes? The saved who survive. Not talking about those... See. Those who are left are left behind and they're lost. And those who are taken are taken to heaven and those are the saved. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with Matthew. It doesn't fit with the flood. And it doesn't fit with the book of Genesis. Now, let's go to number four. A few other uses of the word shawar. In Exodus 14:28, we are told that Pharaoh and his armies drowned in the Red Sea and not so much as one of them remained. How does the NIV translate that? You want to read that one real loud too? Not one of them survived. Oh, okay. Interesting. So the very identical Hebrew word is translated by the NIV in Genesis, left. And here it is translated what? Survived. survived. And in the King, New King James, remained. By the way, are all of those words synonymous? Are they synonymous? What's the picture here? Who are the ones who are left or survived or remained? The saved or the lost? The saved. Very clearly. Now notice the next one, number five. 
Numbers 21.35 explains that Moses slew Og, his sons and his people, until there was no survivor left. If there had been somebody left, they would have what? Survived. So who are the ones who are left? The survivors. Likewise, Judges 4.16 explains that Sisera, and that's a fascinating story. You ought to read Judges 4 and 5. Wow. Talk about a prophetic story. Maybe we ought to include that one in our next series. That's a tremendous, tremendous story. Very symbolic of the end time. But it says there in Judges 4.16 that Sisera and his armies were destroyed and not one man was left. Very same word, Shawar. So who would the left ones be? If they had survived. Who survives when Jesus comes? The saved. Are they zipped off to heaven? No. Because the flood is used as a symbol. When the flood came, <laughs> everything outside was destroyed. There weren't two groups of people. Some that survived outside the ark and others that were destroyed. Everything was destroyed. There were the saved who were left and there were the lost as we'll notice, who were taken. Now, let's go to the next one, number six. Isaiah 4, verse 3. Speaking about the end time says, and it shall come to pass that he who is left. By the way, if you read the context, this is speaking about great military campaign against uh, Judah and against Jerusalem. And it says that the men of Israel were going to be slaughtered. But then it speaks about the remnant in this verse. And it says, it shall come to pass that he who is left, the word shawar, in Zion, and what? And remains. There you have the same word shawar, but it's translated left and remains. Where? In Jerusalem, after the destruction, will be called what? Holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The ones who are left are the holy ones. The same word. Even 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 17, which is, the, which is the prime text, or one of the prime texts that is used by those who believe in the rapture, before the tribulation. Even that text, when you read it carefully, bears this out. Look up 1 Thessalonians 4. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. This is so important that we need to read it even if you did put it into space. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15 and also verse 17. Who wants to read those two verses? Rosalina has a real strong voice like the trumpet and she's not decked out either. <laughs> For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and begin... Hold it! Hold it. Who are alive and what? Oh, thank you very much. Keep on reading. In other words, those who are alive are not going to go to heaven before those who what? Who, who died, who went to sleep. So, I don't know whether you're thinking about this, but uh, if the living do not go to be with the Lord before the dead... That would mean that uh, the dead don't go with the Lord before the living. 
Because the Bible says that they're caught up what? Together. So that must mean that when people die, they don't go directly to heaven. Get the point? You don't. I feel sorry for you. <laughs> Let me just explain it again. Paul understands it. I, I just rib him a lot. But listen, do the, do the living go to heaven before the dead? Do the dead go to heaven before the living? They go what? They go together. Okay? Now, if the dead and the living go together to heaven, did the dead go to heaven when they, went, when they died? No, because then they would have gone first. Before the living. And I, I just can't understand how Christians believe that the second coming is an important event when they believe that, that people who, who died in Christ went to heaven when they died. So why did Jesus come to get them? Oh, they come for their bodies. Oh. Is that what the text says? It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead bodies of those in Christ will rise first. <laughs> the text says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. When Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb, he didn't say, Soul of Lazarus, come from heaven. Get into the body, and body come forth. No. Who was in the tomb? Lazarus. Lazarus. All of Lazarus. And Lazarus didn't have a story to tell. Because the only place he had been was in the grave. Okay, now, verse 17, Rosalina. Uh, those who are alive and what? Who are the ones who remain? Or who are left? Who? Who? All the saved shall be what? Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Where? In the air. See? You remain and then you're what? You're caught up. A little later on, we're going to go to the next chapter, the very next chapter, the first few verses, and we're going to see something tremendous relating to these verses. Now, let's go to number eight. When Jesus comes the second time, we are told that the inhabitants of the earth will be burned and few men will be left. Why will few men be left? Because the rest of them were what? Were taken or destroyed. In fact, we're going to notice when we talk about the word taken that the word taken is used in, used in Isaiah 24 to speak about the lost. So Isaiah 24 uses both, both words, taken and left. The left ones are saved and the taken ones are destroyed. Yes, Gene? Use the word few. That would indicate something is left. That they're all either killed or taken. Oh, sure. The few men who are left are the saved. When Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, in Revelation chapter 6, it says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? In other words, who's going to be what? Who's going to be re remain? Who's going to be left when this destruction comes? The, the few men who are left are the saved. And of course, the other ones are taken. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Some people are going to burn three times. That'll give you some incentive to come tomorrow. <laughs> but believe me, you don't want to burn even once. Number nine. Yes. 
Oh, another question. Thank you for letting me know that there's questions. Yes, sir. We'll explain it tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the millennium, who is left behind. So uh, you need to come tomorrow. Because See, I told you not to get me off track. And I'm being very disciplined. <laughs> Number nine. <laughs> Matthew 24, 39 tells us that the flood came and what? Whoa, now wait a minute. The flood did what? Oh, took them away. Who are the, who are the ones that are taken away? All oh, the wicked are taken away. That means that who was left? The righteous. I mean, do you need to have the intelligence of Albert Einstein to understand that? I don't think so. Matthew 24, 39 tells us that the flood came and took them all away. That is the wicked. The parallel passage in Luke 17, 27 tells us that the flood came and what? Destroyed them all. So who are the taken away ones? The ones who are destroyed. Number nine. Let's talk about the word taken now from a biblical perspective. When the city of Ai was conquered, we are told that it was taken. What does that mean, that the city was taken? It means that everybody in the city was saved. Ah, sorry. doesn't work that way. Because it explains then that it was set on what? On fire. And lest you still have any doubts about what taken means... It tells us that none of the inhabitants were allowed to what? To remain. That's the word lakad. To escape. Shawar, excuse me, not lakad, shawar. In other words, nobody was allowed to escape. All of the wicked were taken, and there was no one left. If there had been somebody left, there would have been someone who's, who survived, who remained. Now, allow me to read... The note, another Hebrew scholar, Walter C. Kaiser, very conservative scholar, good biblical scholar. And, uh, you know, he has a lot of his prophetic views straight because he goes directly to Scripture. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's a very good scholar. He says this about the word lakad, taken. Most of the 121 uses of lakad deal with men capturing or seizing towns, men, spoils, and even a kingdom. This word also serves as a figure of divine judgment. The stone of stumbling, which is Christ, by the way, will cause many to stumble, fall, be broken, be ensnared, and be captured. The word captured there is the word taken. So who are the taken ones? The righteous or the wicked? The wicked. Number 10. Remember that reference in Isaiah 24, verse 6? Few men are left. The word shawar. The ones who are left are the saved. The word taken is used also in Isaiah 24. Notice number 10. In Isaiah 24, 17 and 18, we have a description of the desperate attempt of the wicked to escape when Jesus comes. By the way, we're going to study Isaiah 24 in much more detail in our lesson tomorrow night, Lord willing. It says there in Isaiah 24, He who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be what? Shall be caught. See, it's the same word, lakad, which was translated, taken, in uh, Joshua chapter 8, but it's translated differently. What does the NIV use there? I'm curious. It says, whoever um, of the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. Okay, the word caught is used also. That's the word taken or caught. 
The old King James translates taken. Will be taken in the what? In the snare. Does that mean the righteous or the wicked? Are the ones taken? The righteous or the wicked? The wicked. It says, for the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are what? Are shaken. Number 11. In John 8, we have the story of a woman who was caught. See the same word, but, but it's, it's the, the same, by the way, it's the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 24 for taken. The word lambano. Interesting. What does it mean that the woman was taken or was caught in adultery? I suppose that means that she was saved. <laughs> what does it mean when it says that she was taken or she was caught? It means that she was discovered. She was surprised in the what? In the act. And what did they want to do with her? They wanted to kill her. So when you're caught, you're what? You're guilty. And you're going to get what? Killed. Number 12. In 1 Thessalonians 5.4, the Apostle Paul warns that we should not allow the coming of Jesus to overtake us as a thief. Now, let me, let me just stop here just a minute, even though the clock is moving very fast. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we have those who what? Remember the word? Those who remain. In the very next chapter, the Apostle Paul speaks about those who are overtaken. How many groups are there going to be when Jesus comes? Those who are, those who what? Remain and those who are overtaken. The word overtaken is the same word that you find in Matthew 24 for taken. So who are the taken or the overtaken ones? The Apostle Paul says, be careful that that day does not overtake you as a thief. So what is, what is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying like Jesus, when Jesus comes, don't be what? Don't be taken. Or don't be overtaken. Because if you're overtaken or you're taken, same Greek word, you're going to be what? You're going to be lost. You're going to be destroyed. So who are, who are the remaining ones? Are those the saved or the lost? Who are the ones that are overtaken or taken? Those who are lost. See, the biblical terminology itself explains this. We don't have to impose our meaning on the text. The text itself explains these things for us. Now let's go to number 13. Speaking about the second coming, Matthew 24 verse 40 says that some will be taken. Paul warns that we should not allow that day to overtake us. And Luke says that we should be careful that that day might not come on you unexpectedly. Let me ask you, is it the same thing to say, let not that day take you, let not that day overtake you, or let, not, let that day not come upon you? Is it the same thing? A different way of saying the same thing? And who are the ones that are in danger of that? The saved or the lost? The lost. Is this clear? Biblically? I would also... Let's read the note. Today we use similar expressions as in biblical times. For example, if a devastating flood sweeps away a town, we ask, did the flood take them all away? Wasn't anyone left? Did the flood drown everyone? Didn't anyone remain? 
Was everyone swept away? Wasn't anyone, anyone preserved? Did the flood destroy them all? Wasn't anyone spared? Are all those words synonymous? Of course they're synonymous. Now, there are other arguments that people use to try and prove that the rapture will take place before the glorious coming of Jesus. And we're going to look at some of those uh, very quickly now. The apostasy and the rapture. The apostle Paul explained that Jesus will not come unless the what? Unless the falling away comes first. Now, let's read the note. Those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture say that the coming here referred to is not the glorious second coming of Christ, but rather the rapture seven years before. Now, the problem with this view is that this text very clearly proves that the Antichrist will sit in the temple of God before the coming of Jesus. Is that true? Because it says Jesus will not come unless there is a falling away first. So in other words, the falling away takes place before the coming of Jesus. Those who speak about the rapture, they say that this text is speaking about the rapture. But what they have to do is they have to reinterpret the meaning of the word apostasia. Let's finish reading the note. How do those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture handle this? They reinterpret the word apostasia, falling away, and say it really means departure or snatching away. Total violation of the language. They say, see what they say is, that Jesus will not come in his glorious appearing until the snatching away comes first. Are you with me? Yes. And then there's an apostasy, but the apostasy is after the snatching away. Now, unfortunately, this is a total violation of the biblical text because that's not what the word apostasia means. Uh, even in English, we know what apostasia means. Apostasia means apostasy. And if you read this in context, immediately after saying that Jesus will not come until the apostasy comes, then it says what the apostasy is all about. The man of sin will sit in the temple of God, showing himself to be God. The word apostasia is used in another place in the New Testament. In Acts 21, verse 21, we are told that the apostle Paul was accused of what? Of forsaking Moses. The word forsaking there is apostasia. What does, that, what does it mean that they accused Paul of forsaking Moses? In other words, he was apostatizing from Moses. Is that talking about a snatching away? No, it's speaking about falling away from the what? From the faith, from the truth. Now let's go to our next verse, next section, not appointed to wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 5.9, the Apostle Paul explains that God did not appoint us to wrath. wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, in the seven angels, with the seven last plagues, we are told to, to what? The seven angels are told to pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Right? But we're not appointed to wrath. So we won't be here during the plagues. See, that's the argument. The argument is, see, they take 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, they say, we're not appointed to wrath. The plagues are God's wrath, therefore we can't be on earth because we would experience God's wrath. Are you following the argument? 
Now let's read the note. If God has not appointed his people to wrath but to salvation, how can they go through the tribulation and the plagues if the plagues are a revelation of God's wrath? The fact is that they will be on earth but the plagues will not touch them. The plagues are for the Babylonians who have the mark of the beast. God's people have the seal of God and they are protected from the devastation like Israel and Egypt from the plagues. Like Noah at the flood, like the three young men in the fiery furnace, and Daniel in the lion's den, they will be protected by divine power. Can they live on earth and still not experience the wrath of God? Of course. I mean, how powerful is your God? That's the question. He's all powerful. So can he pour out his wrath upon the world, but shield his people from his wrath? Of course. So this argument that you're not appointed to wrath, I mean, doesn't hold any water. He hasn't appointed us to wrath. That's why he's going to protect us when he pours out his wrath. He's not going to snatch us away so that we don't have to go through the wrath. Now let's go to our next argument that is used. And fortunately, we already dealt with the 70 weeks. That's the biggie. Where they say the prince that shall come. That's some Roman prince that's going to sit over in the Jerusalem temple. And we studied the 70 weeks in detail, if you remember. We saw that that holds absolutely no water. So we didn't deal with it in this lesson. Now, the next argument, kept in the hour of trial. In Revelation 3, verse 10, God promises his people that he will keep them from the hour of trial, trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So is God going to keep his people from the hour of trial? No doubt about that. Note, those who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture say this means that God will now not allow his people to go through this time of trial. But is this what the text means? Fortunately, the same author of Revelation, well, ultimately the author is the Holy Spirit, but the same writer as the book of Revelation, the writer of the Gospel of John, has helped us to understand what it means that they will be kept from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world. The same John who wrote the book of Revelation also wrote the Gospel of John. In John 17, verse 15, Jesus prayed for his disciples. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. In other words, don't rapture them. But that you should what? Keep them from the evil one. Is it possible for God's people to go through the tribulation and yet be kept by God's power? Yes. That's what John says in the parallel verse of John chapter 17. Next argument. Coming with all his saints. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, the Apostle Paul explains that Jesus will come back with all his saints. Now let's read the note. Those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture say that Jesus could never come with his saints if he had not come for them first. <laughs> now that makes sense, doesn't it? You see, obviously, Jesus could never come with his saints unless he took them to be with him in the first place. The key question is, who are these saints with whom Jesus will come? Number two, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, God is described as coming to Mount Sinai to write his law. We are told that he came with... Amen. 10,000 of his saints. 
Well, then the rapture must have happened before God gave the law on Mount Sinai. Right? Because he came with 10,000 of his saints. So the rapture took place before God gave the law on Sinai. It's not going to take place before the tribulation after all. <laughs> Is that what the text is really saying, folks? Who are the saints? Amen. The angels. By the way, you know what the word saints means? What, what word in English is related to saints? Holy. Holy. See, in Spanish we have only one word. Santos. There's not two words. Santos. Santo means holy or holy one. In other words, when it says that he comes with his saints, it means that he's coming with his holy ones. Are the angels holy? Yeah. Of course. Now let's read verse number 2 again. In Deuteronomy 33 verse 2, God is described as coming to Mount Sinai to write his law. We are told that he came with 10,000 of his saints. These 10,000 saints are really what? Angels. Angels. Because their number is 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. You know what's happening there is that John is struggling to describe how many angels he saw. Because in, in the Greek language, there's no word for million. And so, and so he's, uh, he's being verbose. So that he can let us know that it's an innumerable host. He's saying... 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In other words, they're innumerable, is what he's saying. In Mark 8, 38, the angels are called the what? The holy angels. It's the same word, santos, angeles. Holy angels with the saints. It's the same Greek word. The word holy is the same root, root word for saint. In Revelation 19, 11 to 21, Jesus comes with the armies of heaven, which are his what? Angels. So, so much for this argument. Let's go to our next. We're running out of arguments. Escaping all these things. Here is one. Here's one that proves the rapture. In Luke 21, 36... Jesus tells his people to pray so that they may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Aha! See, it says there that we need to pray that we can escape all these things before they happen. Well, let's take a look at that argument. If an earthquake hit a certain place and a lot of people died, but there were a lot of people that survived, would it be proper to say that the people who survived escaped the earthquake? Huh? Of course. What does it mean that they escaped? It means that they survived. Are you with me? Does it necessarily mean that you'd not, you're not going to be in the earth when the, when the earthquake comes? No, it means that the earthquake, earthquake, earthquake came and you what? And you escaped from it. And by the way, uh, the next question clearly tells us 
gives us the answer to this. It says at the second coming of Jesus, the question is asked, who shall be able to what? To stand. Do you see the connection? When Jesus comes in uh, Revelation chapter 6, the islands are disappearing and the mountains are disappearing and the wicked are hiding in caves and they're crying for the rocks to fall upon them. The question is asked, for the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to what? To stand. Is that the same word that's used here in Luke? Yes. We need to pray that when Jesus is manifested, we can escape and we'll be able to what? A stand. Escape what? The wrath of God. Are you following me or not? Yes, Gene. Psalm 91 7, I think, gives us an answer for this too. Okay, what does Psalm 91 7 say? Write that one down. Um, a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, it shall not come near you. See? So those who, do, who, who the tribulation doesn't come near, did they escape? Of course. Escape doesn't mean that you weren't there. It means that when the, when the disaster happened, you got away with your life. Okay, so much for that argument. Let's go to our next. The budding of the fig tree. Here's a biggie. Do you know that most, most people who write in Bible prophecy today say that the greatest sign that the coming of Jesus is imminent is the reestablishment of the state of Israel in 1948. That is the biggie. They say that that's proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that the rapture could take place any moment after 1948. And this is the argument that they use. We're going to go through it. In Matthew 24, 32 and 33, Jesus said that when the fig tree, by the way, the fig tree represents what? Israel, but not always Israel. But it represents Israel. Now, when the fig tree puts forth what? Leaves. It is a sign that the summer is near. Now, is the sign the fig tree or is the sign the budding? <laughs> is it the fig tree that's the focus or is it the budding that's the focus? Well, let's continue reading. He then said that when we see all these things, uh, when we see what? Just the budding of the fig tree. Just the budding of the fig tree. Uh-uh. When we see all these things, we can know that his coming is near, even at the doors. Now, we won't read the note because I already mentioned that. Let's go to number two. In the parallel passage of Luke 21, 29, and 30, Jesus said, Look at the fig tree and all the other trees. Is there a particular significance to the fig tree or is it to the budding? The budding. So it says, look at the fig tree and, and all the other trees. It is the budding which is significant, not the fig tree. And number three is devastating for this theory. Totally devastating. Because if the fig tree, let's assume that in Matthew 24, when Jesus says, when you see the fig tree bud, you know that uh, the coming of Christ is near. Let's assume that that's talking about the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. That would totally go against something else that Jesus said. 
Do you remember when Jesus, starts the end of his ministry, actually this is happening on Tuesday, and he was crucified on Friday. If you look at the Bible chronology, he sees a fig tree in the distance. And he says to the disciples, hey, let's go over there and see if, we, if there's any fruit on that tree. Well, I'm hungry. And so when he gets to the fig tree, it has no fruit, and it should have. Do you know why? Because in Israel, I think I've mentioned this before, in Israel, first the fruit comes out on the tree, and then the leaves come out and announce that there's fruit. So if the tree has leaves, it has to have fruit. But this tree had leaves, but it didn't have any fruit. Who is Jesus talking about here? There's no doubt whatsoever what he's talking about, because in the same, uh, in the same chapter, Jesus spoke about a vineyard that bore no fruit. You remember that parable? When he came looking for fruit, sent messengers, no fruit. Sent more messengers, no fruit. Sent his son, let's get rid of him. So does the fig tree represent the same thing as the vineyard? What does the vineyard represent? Israel. This fig tree that Jesus cursed represents what? Israel. Now let's notice question number three. Jesus explicitly said to the fruitless tree, fig tree, which is a symbol of Israel, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. The next day when Jesus and the disciples passed that place, the tree had dried up from the roots. Any more role for Israel in Bible prophecy? None. It's a distraction. Because the devil wants you to look towards Israel instead of looking towards Rome. And instead of looking towards what's happening in the United States. Particularly in church-state issues. So, so much for this argument. Okay, Jesus coming as a thief. In Revelation 16, 15, Jesus gives the following awesome warning. And you know, I've read many, many books, like I mentioned last night, on prophecy, on the Battle of Armageddon. Oh, and they have so much to say about who the kings of the East are and the drying up of the Euphrates and, you know, on the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet and the three evil spirits like frogs. Man, pages and pages. But this one verse is rarely even commented on. What do you suppose doesn't want anybody to comment on this verse? It tells you what the battle is all about. Revelation 16, 15. Jesus gives the following awesome warning. By the way, do you know something interesting? <laughs> if, you, if you look at, if you have a red letter edition in your Bible, if you have a red letter edition, the red letter edition means that all of the words of Jesus are in red. There's something very interesting. Jesus speaks many times in the messages to the, three, to the seven churches. But this is the only verse where Jesus speaks directly between Revelation chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 20. Do you suppose that if this is the only thing where Jesus is directly speaking, it must be of supreme importance? Huh. Behold, I am coming as a what? As a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his what? 
garments. How do the garments become white? Oh, in the blood of the Lamb. Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Where do you have to go back to fully understand this? Genesis 2 and 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked and they were ashamed. When they were covered with the skins of the Lamb, they were dressed and not ashamed. Now, there's a whole issue in the battle of Armageddon is whether you're covered with the righteousness of Christ or not. Whether you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, truly. Let's read the note quickly. Those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture claim that there can be no sequence of signs which must occur in, in order before the rapture. They say that if there was a sequence of signs which must occur in order, then the, first, the coming of Jesus would surprise no one. Are you understanding their argument? Yeah, if you have a, a, a series of signs that must be fulfilled, then you look at the signs and say, oh, he's, he's about to come because there's this, we're here in the signs. Now, it sounds like a good argument. The problem with this argument is threefold. People could be surprised if they chose to ignore the signs. You say, how's that? Remember that volcano that exploded in Colombia? Several years ago, 22,000 people buried. I've been on that uh, snow-covered slope many times when I taught in, in Colombia. I've been to the, to the city, that city that was buried, before it was buried, obviously. Let me just share some interesting information uh, with you about having signs and ignoring them. See, necessarily, not necessarily because you have a series of signs. You know, you know when Jesus is going to come. You can ignore the signs or you can misinterpret the signs. Correct? Yeah. Let me just read this to you. On Wednesday, November 13, I wrote this myself. 1985, the city of Armero, Colombia, was totally buried by an avalanche of mud caused by the eruption of the volcano Nevado del Ruiz. Some 22,000 persons lost their lives. Could this disaster have been averted? Were there not signs of impending destruction? The answer is yes. Why were so many people taken by surprise when there were so many signs? In an article published by the newspaper El Espectador, written by Rodolfo Rodriguez Calderón, we discover that every single person could have saved their lives if they had paid attention to the signs, but they chose to ignore and disbelieve them. Now let me read you the signs. Eleven months before the disaster, the mountain had begun spewing out smoke. The fluffy snow on the mountain crest had become a solid sheet of ice due to the intense heat within the mountain. The water level of the rivers increased Due to the great amount of melting snow, the cloud of ash and gases, which was only 150 feet high at first, increased to 750 feet the second day, and the day before the disaster had reached a height of 16,000 feet. On September 11th, <laughs> on September 11th, the earth tremors reached an intensity of three. The people could feel the earth shake all day. The people could constantly hear the mountain rumble within. This newspaper writer is, telling all, is saying all of this. 
The authorities had to close the roads that gave access to the mountain's tourist resort because they were totally covered by mudslides. It was impossible for people to keep their houses clean because of the volcanic ash which blew into town daily. The people could constantly smell sulfur in the air. A torrential rain along with wind of hurricane proportions began to fall around 9 p.m. of the night when the volcano exploded. It was dark, unusually dark. Eyewitnesses who, who survived affirmed that it was like a supernatural darkness. Yet 22,000 people died. Why? Well, let me share this with you. Same article. A priest, the town priest, by the name of Edgar Efren Torres, came over the radio at 7 p.m. that night and told the people, there is no reason to panic. Please keep, keep, keep calm. The civil defense, in an official radio release, affirmed there is no reason to be concer concerned. The bishop of the town, town Augusto Osorio, warned against fanatics who were making it appear like a major disaster was imminent. And then, of course, he skipped town. <laughs> the mayor said, don't worry. The governor of the state of Tolima said, later said, the da disaster could not have been predicted beforehand. <laughs> Colombian scientist Jaime Villegas Velasquez affirmed, this volcano is never going to erupt. Nothing is going to happen. Beware of speculations and exaggerations. The Secretary of Mines, Ivan Duque Escobar, said nothing will happen. Even the United States geologist, Daryl Hurd, had said it is very improbable that the cities could be buried by rocks, lava, or mud. The Regional Emergency Committee sent this message by radio. Don't expect your windows to shatter. Don't expect darkness. Don't expect lava to run down the mountain. Don't expect large layers of ash, among other things. And then they said, just go out and enjoy the sight. Hmm. Now let me ask you, could they have escaped? Why didn't they? Because instead of paying attention to the signs, they listened to the experts. Is it possible to have all kinds of signs and still not be ready? Still be surprised? Of course. And so this argument of Jesus coming as a thief, if there's, you know, it means that he can come any moment. We're going to notice in our study tomorrow that the coming as a thief, or not tomorrow, but the, the study on uh, Wednesday, the coming of the thief is emphasizing the fact that the probation for the world is going to close unexpectedly. And when Jesus actually comes, people are, are going to realize that the door of probation had already closed previously. That's why it's called, Jesus will come as a thief in the night. You see, the coming of the thief has two stages. First stage is when he comes and you're sleeping and you don't know he came. You've been caught by surprise, but you don't know it. And the second stage is when in the morning you wake up and you find out that all of these things are missing from your house, then you're also surprised. Now you know that the thief came. Do you know the same thing is going to happen with regard to the second coming? Probation for the world is going to close before Jesus comes. But most of the world is going to be unaware that Jesus has come like a thief and he's closed the door. They will only realize it when Jesus is coming on the clouds of heaven and they're lost.
Amazing. Now, should we finish? Oh, we have so much to cover yet. Maybe we better quit here. No? <laughs> okay, let's go very quickly to the last page, okay? Be patient. The coming of Jesus as a thief in the night also refers to his what? To his glorious appearing. You read that in 2 Peter 3.10. Now let's talk about the blessed hope of the church. The coming of Jesus will be what? Visible and personal. As he departed for heaven, an angel told his followers, This same Jesus. Did Jesus have a body? Yes. Could they see him? Yes. Did his body have flesh and blood? Yes. yes. This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Is the second coming of Jesus visible? Yes. In fact, that's what number two says. Revelation 1-7 tells us that when he comes with the clouds, every eye shall see him. That is, of those who are alive. His coming will not be invisible or secret. Every eye of every living person on planet earth will see him. Doesn't sound like it's secret to me. Number three, the coming of Jesus will be very noisy and very visible. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a what? The shout with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The one with the voice of the archangel is whom? Jesus. Because the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. Did you catch that? The voice of the archangel is the voice of Jesus. Because Jesus says, the time is coming when those who are dead will hear my voice. Number four. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus will come a second time. If the rapture were true, then there would be three comings of Jesus. Number five. The blessed hope of Christians is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not a secret appearing. The hope of the Christian church is what? The glorious appearing of Jesus Christ in the clouds to receive his people to himself. Number six, Jesus promised to take his people to his father's house and his father's house is where? In heaven. Jesus promised to take his people to his father's house in heaven. If there is only one stage to the second coming of Jesus, and he stays here with his people for the millennial reign, then the promise of John 14, 1-3 would not be fulfilled. Are you understanding what I'm saying? This is the real reason why the rapture theory has been created. But this problem is resolved when we realize that Christ will come the second time to take his people to heaven for the thousand year reign and then he will return with his people to earth to set up his everlasting kingdom. Do you understand that note? We'll discuss it a little bit more tomorrow, Lord willing. An overmastering delusion. Why is this important? When Jesus returns, he will what? Receive, Receive his people to himself. Is he coming all the way down? No. no. He will not come all the way down to earth. In fact, it says that the angels will gather the elect. The Apostle Paul says, he speaks about our gathering to him. Caught up in the air, taken to the Father's house. See, Jesus is not coming all the way down. He's going to remain in the air. Does the devil know that? 
Why does the devil want people to think that when Jesus comes in his glorious coming, he's going to spend a thousand years on earth? Because when the devil counterfeits the second coming of Christ, most Christians who believe that he's going to set his millennial reign up here on earth are going to believe that he's the true Christ. Is it important to know how Jesus will come? Oh, it's a matter of life and death. Number two, Jesus warned that if anyone says to you, therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Look, he is in the inner rooms. In other words, in public or in private, do not believe it. For as the lightning, anybody ever seen secret lightning? For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, be very visible and very glorious. Number three, the Apostle Paul warned that Satan would counterfeit the second coming of Jesus and would work with all power and signs and wonders and lying wonders. He said that most people would believe this lie, especially those who did not receive the love of the truth. How important it is, is it to receive the truth? To believe the truth. And to live the truth, it's a matter of life and death. Our faith must be firmly rooted in the Word of God. We must know how Jesus will come, lest we be deceived. Did you enjoy the lesson tonight? Yeah. Well, praise the Lord. Now, tomorrow night, we'll study about the millennium. Uh, one of my very favorite lessons. Don't miss it for anything in the world. Let's bow our heads for a closing word of prayer. Father... Thank you for being with us tonight and thank you for revealing these things so clearly in your holy word. We ask, Lord, that you will continue to instruct us and teach us so that we might not be deceived, so that we might be standing and ready to receive Jesus when he comes and we might say, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Be with us as we return to our homes. Protect us, Lord, from harm and danger, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.